собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. In 2017, the Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta published an explosive investigation. The authorities in Chechnya were rounding up LGBT people, torturing and even allegedly executing them for being queer. It was a reign of terror sanctioned by the Chechen authorities, involving the Chechen security services, police, and even regular citizens. Moscow turned a blind eye and has since rejected evidence showing that this state violence occurred. We know what we know about the fate of LGBT people in Chechnya thanks to the testimonies of victims smuggled out of the North Caucasian Republic by activists in Russia. It's safe to say that these activists have saved hundreds of lives and not without personal cost to them and their families. The film, Welcome to Chechnya, documents these efforts and highlights not only the victims' traumas, survival, and struggles for justice, but also the heroic work of those activists dedicated to their cause. For more on the making of Welcome to Chechnya and the stories in it, I talked to its director, David France. David France is an Oscar-nominated filmmaker, a New York Times best-selling author, and award-winning investigative journalist. He's directed three films on LGBT rights, resistance, and life, including How to Survive a Plague, The Life and Death of Marsha P. Johnson, and most recently, Welcome to Chechnya. You can view Welcome to Chechnya on HBO. Here's David France. So just to, to start, uh, can you please introduce yourself? I am David France. I'm the director of the documentary feature film Welcome to Chechnya on HBO. And, you know, you do have the, this new film. This is your, your third film. It is. It is. Uh, Welcome to Chechnya. And um, what is this film about? Uh, the, uh, the film is about an ongoing uh, genocide in the um, Russian Republic of Chechnya against the LGBTQ community there. It is um, kind of well-known, well-acknowledged, um, but not well-opposed uh, by, you know, political and diplomatic leaders around the world. It was first revealed in 2017, uh, and yet it is still ongoing, um, with you know faint expressions of dismay from from global leaders. And in that void, um, and this is really the heart of the film, is um, uh, a group of kind of ordinary uh, activists in Russia who have taken it upon themselves to to take action to try to save lives. Where um, uh, where no one else was really stepping in. So it's a story about this kind of extreme form of um, um, kind of courageous uh, intervention that, um, that is taking place 
to, to the great peril of the people who are doing it um, in order to save the lives of the people who are able to escape the, the horrors that are taking place in Chechnya. Yeah, there there are some incredible individuals who are who are featured in this film. Um, but first, why did you make this movie? Well, you know, I think I was well. I, you know, I I read the news as everybody did in early twenty seventeen that this was happening. I was horrified, um, and uh, I but I wasn't called to to take on this project myself. I wasn't really called into action until I learned about those activists and what they were doing. Um, and that they were doing their work, not because they had, you know, been tr- trained and prepared to do this kind of um, um, intense uh, intervention, these extractions, as they call them, of people out of the area. But they they were doing it because nobody else was, because really the rest of the world had remained too quiet. And I felt impl- that I, I felt complicit in that, and I felt a need to go and do something about it. Um, I'd also made two other films, both about this kind of extreme, radical LGBTQ activism. Um, the, uh, and this seemed to be in keeping in theme. And I was really interested to meet the people who were doing this work and find out what they had that en- enabled them uh, to take on these challenges that the rest of us might not um, automatically be able to muster. Yeah, this really comes out the the issues of safety, not just for the people that they're trying to get out of Chechnya and then out of Russia, but also the safety of the activists, the safety around uh, the shelter. And I would imagine in filming it, um, the safety of you and the crew. So talk about some of the challenges of, of making a film like this about a subject like this in such a place like Russia, but also a bit in Chechnya. Well, the, you know, the, the everything that the activists are doing is is carried out in cover of darkness. Um, they are uh, hiding people who are being hunted. They're being hunted if 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 the, their work is understood. Uh, they set up a network of secret shelters throughout the country to store people um, while they began to negotiate with foreign. Uh, embassies to see if they could secure um, invitations for humanitarian visas for the people that they were rescuing and are rescuing. And um, so the first risk, of course, was that I might, just as a Westerner traipsing through uh, the Russian countryside, um, uh, reveal uh, and and kind of breach the security of the, the existence of these shelters. So I had to be very careful about that. I certainly couldn't be seen to be a film crew making um, journeys in and out of these places. And um, so, uh, so that was our first kind of obstacle was how to do that, how to get into the buildings, how to bring equipment in. We ultimately left cameras inside the houses so that we didn't have to carry them in and out. Um, and, uh, and then what to do with the footage itself once we shot it, because the footage became uh, a... a, a, a uh, a roadmap to anybody who might have inter- intercepted it that would have brought people right to the, you know, to the, to the doors of these shelters. So we worked with um, kind of international security experts on data protection and encryption and, um, and developed a series of protocols for moving data in and out of uh, Russia uh, and securing it in ways that we were confident that if we were to lose 
track of it, if somehow it were to be taken from us, um, it would not be accessible, um, even to the extraordinary powers of the Russian um, kind of cybersecurity universe. And I would imagine the relationship with the subjects themselves has to be a really special one, because I was reading uh, um, an interview with uh, Olga uh, Baranova, uh, where she talks about how she went through some of the footage. She went through the footage, I think, more than once to make sure there aren't these identifying markers of what country, what town, where the location of the shelters are. Mm, It's exactly true. And uh, and uh, we made that a promise in, uh, to her and to everybody who worked with her organization, the Moscow Community Center for LGBT Initiatives, and also with David Esteve uh, and everyone who worked with him at the Russian LGBT Network, that, um, that they really were uh, in the driver's seat for what constituted uh, safe release uh, for this film. Um, and that required us to sit with them and go through the film frame by frame, uh, like literally frame by frame. When we are in a, um, a secret location in, a, in an undisclosed country, if we happen to walk through the kitchen, for example, we examined everything on every shelf, every item, uh, outlets, uh, you know, for electrical outlets that might give away a country. And we altered everything that was necessary to alter so that we didn't bring um, any attention, uh, undue attention. We didn't drop any crumbs for people to follow to get to us. And and that included working with the survivors themselves who were uh, very aware of the ramifications that would fall on them if if their participation in this film had been figured out. And so we worked with them or their representatives to make sure that uh, any aspects of their uh, identity um, that we, that weren't uh, that for example I wouldn't necessarily know uh, that we would work with them to cover those things up. One example is that one of the uh, subjects was wearing a ring that was given to her by uh, in a, it was a family heirloom, and I wouldn't have known that as much as we worked to uh, protect her anonymity in her face, she had to tell us that we had to get rid of that ring as well. Uh, so we did a lot of kind of VFX work to cover those, those footprints. How did, you know, I, I, I tend to ask this about anthropologists who go, you know, to go to these communities, they're outsiders, you know, some, most of the time they know the language, but sometimes they don't know the language. They have to go to intermediaries. How did the the activists, but also the the subjects, the people who the refugees, how, how did they regard you when you you know approached them to to make this film? Uh, it's interesting because I, I I am one of those uh, uh, interlopers without even the power of the language, um, and uh, my introduction to Olga Baranova was um, through. A, a mutual acquaintance. And um, that was the journalist Masha Gessen who had revealed their story for the first time in The New Yorker. And I called Masha immediately and said, I, I, need, to, I, I need to talk to Olga about doing this. And Masha put us in contact. And that was um, uh, an introduction that was meaningful to Olga. And that al- allowed us to begin a series of conversations uh, 
Olga was very eager to get this story told. Uh, she and her organization needed the attention. They needed the, the eyes of the uh, global public. Um, they needed more allies internationally. Um, that was not the case for um, the people at the Russian LGBT network. Their immediately thought when I reached out to them was that I could do them no good and only do them harm. And, um, and so that was a much longer conversation with, with them about what power they might exert over the uh, security protocols for the film, um, uh, how influential they could be about that. And certainly I was, um, I was not only wide open to their influence in that, but I was very hopeful that they would be influential there, that they would help me understand risks and parameters. And then the subjects, and I think for the subjects, it was uh, it was a much more difficult ask. Obviously, they had many of them had just escaped uh, some just unspeakable torture, and um, and and they knew that that was still a possibility that they were they were never going to be fully free of that. So the conversation was really about you know getting to know one another in some way. And, and that's hard to do through intermediaries. It really is. Um, but I think that there was something else. Uh, I think that they felt a kind of affinity with me, even in my silence in my inability to communicate my muteness. Um, I think that they saw me as a, and, and I watched them uh, in this development as they were coming to a, a new kind of understanding of their sense of their identities uh, that they were seeing in those of us who were queer and older, something of uh, potential, something of uh, role model, parent figures um, in some way, um, that, th that these ideas were, had not been available to them in Chechnya. Uh, there is no uh, gay identity in Chechnya. It's not allowed it's not um uh modeled by anybody it's it's something that would never it, um uh, you know find its own expression and i we i saw people come into the shelter their first day there and just um open to the idea of their sense of self uh and their uh sense of community and to have arrived into the heart of such a gay space as these shelters were um, was, was really eye-opening for them. And I think in some way I became part of, of what they saw when they opened their eyes. And I think that, I think that they were um, heartened by that in some way and just kind of accepted me as this unspeaking um, member of this new future for, of, of theirs. And, and they, they, we developed a warmth. I mean, I was literally embedded in the system for nearly 18 months. And um, you'd think I would have learned a little Russian in that time. But, um, but uh, I did learn a, a kind of an unspoken language that, um, that really developed a, a kind of familial relationship with the people who were doing this work. Yeah, you know, this is this is really fascinating because 
you know, I think I think David Tsayev uh, says this on a number of occasions, occasions where these people, I mean, not only are they have been brutalized, traumatized, but they literally are rebuilding a new, they're building a new life because a lot of them were, you know, various professionals. I mean, everything is ripped from them. Uh, family, occupation, career, place of home, sense of home. Um, and so it, on the one hand, it's, I'm, you know, considering the levels of, of you know, trauma and, and attack on oneself and the need to like rebuild oneself. It's, I'm surprised on the one hand um, of that community, but on the other hand, it, it, it's, it's like, thank God that it's there because these people do have to, you know, see a future, right? They not only have to like, you know, wrangle with their present, they have to also think of a life beyond this. And I would imagine that, you know, this space, and, and also I think just, you know, having your presence there being older, I mean, I know this is the case, this generational aspect is really important, for example, uh, in the late 1990s about around AIDS, um, you know, was a really important aspect to their life. Yeah, no, it, I, I, I think that it was, you know, it was, this, this opening up, this flowering that I described was one of the most miraculous things that I'd ever seen. And, um, and I guess it did, did throw me back to this, to earlier times in my own memory. I mean, I grew up uh, in a community where uh, being queer was, um, was shameful and outrageous and there were no other examples of queer people in my universe i did actually frankly believe i was the only one for many many years um so um so i had a kind of a um a similar journey and um and my journey took many 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 years as i think it did for people of my generation and to watch that jury con journey condensed into to just a few days and weeks um, uh, was just kind of one of those, those moments that I'm, uh, that I'll never forget. Um, and you're right there, the future that they were having, to, that they were being forced to imagine was a future with a community and a new sense of family, a new, uh, a family, if you will, new language, new country, new, uh, opportunities, new obstacles, all of it terrifying. And, um, and every once in a while, there are these moments of warmth and encouragement. And I think that, um, that Askol Kurov, who is the cinematographer who was with me, uh, and I uh, represented a little bit of that for them. And, and, um, and also, we were able to talk to them about, uh, I think the, there was people who agreed to be in the film uh, were many of them had some aspiration in the arts. And, um, and I think that's one of the things that, that drew them to want to contribute uh, to the film. And we were able to talk to them about their desires and their hopes, their plans for, for a future in the arts and what aspects of that they were developing. And we were able to share some of that stuff with them in that part of their lives. And I think that was that, that was important in helping them begin to imagine that bridge that was going to take them to the new, to the new reality for them. 
Yeah. Wow. That, that, that is really actually powerful that I didn't consider when I was watching it, how just your presence and the presence of people, part of your crew is also a, you know, a place of potential, you know, I don't want, I don't want to overstate, you know, your importance, but nonetheless, I want to recognize it in the sense of it being also a, a potential place of like healing, right. And coming to terms with one's experience. I, th I think maybe, and you know, I'm I'm married, um, so that th and that was fascinating to them. And you know, what was my life like, and what was life like in the in the, you know, in New York? Um, they didn't even really know what life was like in Moscow. Most of them, and so there was so much that w was um, that lay ahead for them that um, that any um, you know rumors of those places were. Um, sought and we were able to provide some of that tell me about these activists people like uh david stev and and olga baronova and but there's you know there's others there um who aren't directly named right they're stand-ins for yeah. the others right um you know what what i mean these are extra I, I you know i don't it's it's safe to say i mean first off they're doing god's work i mean and 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 they're just extraordinary people in terms of their energy their ability to put themselves out there to, to talk about them and and you know what how you evaluate them and understand you know this mission that they've taken on well uh, you know I've, i think i've said this before but i I, when I arrived into the system, I was expecting to to hear horrific stories and to um, to witness the post trauma syndromes that would be uh, expected, the physical wounds that, from which people were healing. I was expecting, you know, all of the aspects of um, the horrors of the campaign in Chechnya, um, and I was kind of steeled myself to, to, to that. I was, I was ready for that. Um, I was a little grateful that I was getting some of that filtered through a translator. And there's something about putting a step or two between you and the storyteller that way that makes it a little easier to understand. And, um, but what I wasn't, uh, imagining or preparing myself for, and that what surprised me so much was this sense of love that the, that the activists expressed. Um, and I, I, th I think you see it in the film, the way that, that Olga um, interacts with the people she's saving. These are people whose names she doesn't know. She doesn't know them at all. She doesn't know anything about their case histories. Um, there was a, although we don't detail it in the film, there, they made a very specific decision to keep everybody working in the shelter, naive as to the, identities of the people that way that they would not be a um they would not be in a position to kind of accidentally you know break confidentiality or spill information maybe while on the train on the way home that might be overheard um so everybody's shelter identities that they adopted that's all the shelter directors knew were those identities and and, and yet, the tenderness that she shows to, to the people there is just this expression of humanity like, like I had never seen before. And maybe I wonder if it takes that kind of love or ability to love or um, uh, motivation to love to, to put yourself in 
the difficult situations that she put herself in. And, uh, and we know from the film that the, that included uh, drawing such attention to herself that even she had to leave the country. And, uh, and that was a total surprise to her. She was never um, thinking that she was building this underground railroad to be able to take that journey herself, but there she was. And I think you get the same feeling from David. I mean, David is a person who had been a journalist, as, as he says in the film. Um, and he had joined to do some work with the agency on help, helping to build conferences around transgender issues. And then he took a job helping on you know, emergency relief, which in the, in the days before this genocide meant that he would help people who were thrown out of their house by their parents. He would he would help them find a place to stay, uh, you know. He was he was like a social worker, uh, in a way, and and suddenly his life was converted overnight into this um, kind of um, you know, uh, life of uh, you know like an underground spy. Really, his the way that he moves through the nights, the way that he covers his tracks, the way. He organizes these uh, deceptions in order to be able to get people to safety. Uh, it's just remarkable that he was able to do it, even just physically able to do it and intellectually able to do it, but that emotionally uh, to allow something like this to take over his life as it did. Um, and, you know, it, it disrupted every aspect of his life. His, his domestic life was thrown into chaos, uh, um, which I'm sure he would explain. Uh, but it's not in the film. Uh, and, um, and now he lives in the shadows and continues to do this work um, in a way that is still saving people's lives. Um, and um, and th there's no coming back for him. I mean, it, as long as he stays in Russia, uh, this is the work he's going to do. And he has no plan whatsoever to leave the country. He will not he leave the country. And he says that over and over, he will not be forced out of his homeland. And, uh, and so he keeps at it. I want to ask you, you, you know, you've used the term so far in our conversation, you've used the term genocide twice. And, you know, I can imagine a listener hearing you use that word and say, okay, yeah, well, they're not too comfortable with it. So what, what, why do you call this a genocide? Why does this, you know, why do you use the term genocide? For, the, for what's happening in Chechnya? Well, I use the term because if it were happening to any other subpopulation, if it were happening to a religious minority, not a sexual minority, a political minority, not a sexual minority, uh, etc., cetera, uh, it would be called a genocide. Uh, it's a campaign by the government to identify, round up, and liquidate all LGBTQ Chechens. It's a blood cleansing campaign, as it's been formally described. Um, and it is, um, uh, and it's dictated by the political leadership and carried out in large part by the political leadership. Now, with the um, kind of press ganged uh, participation of family members to carry out so-called honor killings, uh, as a kind of a second front in, in this campaign. 
But you're right to point out that genocide is not used when talking about a campaign that goes after queers. If it went after a racial minority, it would be genocide. But in the international uh, diplomatic dictionary, gay people are considered a social minority, not a political or racial or uh, you know other sort of minority. And as a social minority, we are not on the list of of, uh, uh, of, of communities which, if targeted, would be called genocide. It's it is without doubt a crime against humanity. Um, and uh, it's discussed that way in international courts. Um, but I, I don't seed ground on that definition of a genocide just because uh, we have not formally made uh, that, that global list yet. I mean, you know, just the clips of, uh, of Kadir, Ramzan Kadir, uh, you know, you have this clip of this interview he did with uh, HBO's Real Sports where, I mean, his language is genocidal. Um, you know, he basically, he basically says, A, we don't have, you know, homosexuals in Chechnya and B, if there are, they're not part of the nation. They're basically like, you know, completely outside of the political community and don't deserve to be in the political community and they need to be wiped out. Um, so, you know, I, I can, I can certainly see a lot of merit in, in that term on, on just on that level itself. Um, tell us about some of the some of the people uh, who've had who had to flee Chechnya. I mean, we meet a couple of them. We have uh, Ahmad, who uh, eventually goes to Canada. Uh, the main person is Grisha, who actually goes public, um, and then Anya, who we know the least about, and of course we don't know what happens to her. Um, why did you focus on these these three characters? for you the story it was a, a hard decision to make it there are so many other characters that i spent so much time with uh, who, who the hardest conversation i had to have with them was that i couldn't find a way to fit their their stories into the film um, it's it the film couldn't carry all stories at while still spending enough time with each one to bring the the viewer into the to the center of their of their narratives the center of their realities um uh Akhmad because um he and two other people in that scene um were on their way the next morning or, or the next evening uh and the, they uh they really illustrated the the, the sense of hope, I think, that um, that some people had as they were finishing up their time in the shelter and making their way to the airport and making their way to a country where they had just been to a training session to learn how to walk the streets in in Canada, um, what to say, how to say how to things to Canadians to to look them in the eye, to keep your physical distance. They had been given all these rules and that made Canada seem like it was a place of, of rules and regulations. And they were, they were wide open to experiencing it. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and that wide openness was refreshing and important. And I, and I wanted to spend time with them. I also spent time with uh, Ahmad and 
many of the other people who went to Toronto, once they got to Toronto and I filmed them there, as their lives were unfolding, as they were learning the language, as they were falling in love and out of love and back in love, um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the ebb and flow of a refugee life. And there was no room for that in the film either, although there were so many really strong success stories there that were very heartwarming. Um, and um, Grisha, of course, because he comes forward and, and you know, he, he, of all the people who have been uh, targeted by Kadyrov and his henchmen, uh, Grisha is the one whose moral compass somehow forced him to step forward, to give a press conference, to claim his story in legal filings, criminal complaints against the leadership of the Chechen government. And the leadership was there in his tortures. He reveals the identities of the people who had tortured him and has evidence proving that he was there and what they had done to him. And that act of, of courage is really remarkable. And um, and and the and the weight too, because it's not it's not just him. It's his, you know, his his boyfriend of ten years, but also his family. I mean, they all had to be relocated. Yeah, they they started coming after his family. Yeah, they started targeting every person in his family that they could in order to keep him quiet. And that's the 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 tool uh, of the of the dictator, right? Is to be able to reach every lever to uh, exact a kind of a pressure campaign. Um, and in his, in Greece's case, it literally meant that all of them had to get out of Russia and to, to relocate an entire family unit. Um, and, and he was lucky that he didn't have a great extended family uh, was a great challenge for the, for the activists to find a way to do this. And, but they knew that they needed to, they needed to get the family away before they filed their, uh, their uh, charges. And he is still battling that campaign. So he's still really the, the face of the opposition to this. And his case, as we see, was thrown out of the courts in Russia because the courts are not at all independent there or at all curious, or I don't even believe they read any of his complaints. And, um, and, uh, so now he's, he's prosecuting his case in the European courts, the human rights court and others. And, uh, and, and he's advancing and it seems that, uh, that he will find the justice that he's looking for. What he was mostly looking for is to force an end to this regime, to this campaign in Chechnya. And so far he has not been able to do that. So he feels quite, um, let down and disappointed. Um, and wishes that the rest of the world would have followed his lead and then begun to put that pressure on. And although, and, you know, I should say to you, Sean, that that pressure has been coming in the last week or two. And it's been coming from the, uh, the EU and elsewhere because another uh, notorious um, kidnapping took place by Chechen officials against two um, young uh, LGBT victims of a previous campaign there. I mean, they, they were rescued by the network last summer and they, the network was hiding them and they were discovered and abducted and taken back last week. And so 
this is ongoing. This the the case of those two young men. One's actually a boy of seventeen, uh, has gotten the attention of the State Department, gotten the attention of the Congress in the U.S. of the uh, the European Court for Human Rights that has issued a ruling demanding safe passage for them to get back to to their safe houses, and um, and so I think that the work that Grisha began is really coming to some fruition. I think he really has empowered world leaders and diplomats to start adding their voices to all of this. And and it continues in Russia, too, because just yesterday I was uh, in Nove Gazeta, which was the newspaper that broke this this story uh, in 2017. They just released another investigation in partnership with a lot of the activists in, in your film uh, about a list of summary, summary executions that on that at list includes, I think, th- I think it was three... LGBT people. Um. Yes, it was. It was a phenomenal report, one of uh, a series, the beginning of a series for the paper and for Elena Malashina, who's the, the investigative reporter who's really been on top of this, um, just a remarkable journalist. Uh, and the, this uh, investigation is based in large part on um, a whistleblower that uh, the Russian LGBT network was able to... Um, court over the years, somebody who had worked in the security system, somebody who had first-hand experience in the, 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 this genocide, um, and had uh, um, forensic evidence in his possession that was an essential uh, part of proving any um, larger case about crimes against humanity. Uh, and it was years of courtship with this source to, to bring, uh, bring the information to the public. And finally they were able to do that by relocating him again with his entire family, um, and in, in, in a secure location. And I think what the uh, Russian LGBT network has been able to demonstrate globally is their ability to, to protect people um, and once they get them out of the country, to be able to work with them in ways that are uh, effective and safe. You know, in, in these efforts to to shed light on, uh, you know, people's lives, the complexity uh, of these issues when it, in, when it involves really extreme violence and torture and trauma, um, how do you, how do you as, as, as a filmmaker who's making, you know, trying to represent this story. How do you prevent a certain sense of voyeurism and exoticism around the violence? Um, and this is coming from, you know, somebody who, who's been, you know, dealing with Russia for many, many years. And a lot of the assumptions we have about that place are already steeped in, in tropes of violence. And, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's sometimes it's a challenge to actually tell human stories and not let the violence take over. Well, you know, violence is both particular and general. And w- what I wanted to do and felt uh, it was important to do was to particularize the violence in, in this story, that this is you know, it's one thing to talk about a genocide. It's another thing to talk about one young person's experience. And, um, and then to tell that single experience in a way that allows a viewer to do the generalizing. 
Um, and I think that's what really uh, uh, expresses the horror. Um, I think the horror is all in the individual story. And, um, and so there, and that I think is not about voyeurism anymore. It's about connecting to that subject, to the, to the person himself or herself. And, um, and I, I said earlier that I, I couldn't put everybody's stories in. And I'm, I, I was afraid when trying to carve down the numbers of stories that that, that was that balance, right? So if, if everyone told a story of suffering and torture and violence, if it were just became a kind of a, a cacophony that it would distance us from those stories, the, the individual stories, from the horror, that we would not experience that horror w- with horror. And and I would imagine this it would also be just completely disempowering. I mean, as a viewer, you're already in a passive position, and then to have this, and if you presented an overwhelming story like like this of of violence, it basically you know turns the viewer into just a complete powerlessness. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And and uh, yeah. And, and what we see in the film is where human intervention, advocacy works. And that works on a person-to-person basis, and uh, and so the more that I focused on a, on these single, singular stories, the more the larger reality seemed to come into focus. I was reading an interview with uh, Olga Baranova, and and she she made this really interesting comment that I'd like to have your thoughts on. She says that um, this is a quote: "You are seeing only part of it. That is the film." But there is a lot of there was a lot of footage. A lot of things were filmed. We lived through it and moved on. But the film crew watched it all several times, edited it. Of course, everyone is traumatized. What are, what are you th- your thoughts on on this comment? I found it profound on a number of levels. Um, yeah, it really is a. Um, it's the first time hearing that. So yeah, her her identification with. The crew's suffering. That's that's very fascinating. Um, but she's she's right, and and um, it 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 especially because the, our crew was, as you can imagine, uh, almost entirely um, made up of Russian exiles, almost entirely uh, queer asylum seekers. Um, and uh, or you know, people who have been given asylum or refugee status um, of, of some sort in the U.S. Uh, people who have fled Russia already because of their identity, um, and uh, and it, it took a great toll on on them. One that we recognized and 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 made sure to discuss on a on a regular basis, but. We didn't really recognize the extent of it, I think, and um, and it wasn't until after you know we worked on the film right up until the day that we brought it to to um, Sundance a year ago, just a year ago, to premiere it there, and we met up in Park City, Utah, with David and with Olga and with um, Grisha and his family, his boyfriend, um, you know, people from the film coming to join us for the world premiere of the film. The Sundance, because we had been given um, uh, uh, threats um, that we took seriously, 
um, we had um, security protocols that were put in place for this. We had armed guards with us at, at all times. We were um, we were uh, in on, we were on a war footing, really, kind of a guerrilla war footing in the rollout. We went right from Park City to Berlin, where we know that there's a huge um, uh, exo- a huge um, diaspora of Chechens where we know that that diaspora has, is capable of doing like daylight assassinations as they had done only months before that uh, Kadyrov's reach goes into Berlin w- without limitation, it seems. And uh, so again, we were, uh, you know, we were protected by armed people at all times. The, 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 the police, the national police were also, uh, guarding us and clearing all of the theaters before any audience members would go in. And then, and suddenly we went from that to being at home with COVID uh, lockdown. And uh, back in New York, most of us looking out our windows, thinking that the, that the specter of Chechen retaliation has now been replaced with this kind of viral, the um, indiscriminate assault and, um, and that's when we started to have our breakdowns, I think. And, um, and we were meeting regularly on Zoom and we realized what we had been through, um, we hadn't taken care of. And, um, and we started, we, I mean, we felt so undefended suddenly. Um, so we called in a therapist and started doing weekly therapy sessions um, with the entire crew. And they were very, very meaningful and very... Uh, 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 impactful, I think, in helping us address our terrors, the terrors that we had felt but not expressed throughout the two years we had spent working on the film. Yeah, I mean, you didn't have that. You didn't have that space of kind of you know reflection because you're just working, 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 and then you're promoting, you're traveling around, and then you don't have that distance to kind of say, you know, you're kind of, I would imagine, just running on a reproduction of adrenaline and other people's adrenaline and yeah and we, we, we you know we had learned um to to you know reflect a kind of a courage from people like olga and david um and which we were doing like we were thinking if they can take this on we can take this on and um and then in the long run we 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 saw what it had done to us and was doing to us and continues to do to us because we are still in the trench with everybody, we're on the um, in communication on a daily basis. I was talking with um, Maxime just yesterday, with Grisha Maxime just yesterday, um, and uh, uh, you know, and we're still rolling the film out. So it's 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 still um, a, a real part of our lives, and I think it will always be. I mean, I don't think that you that you embed in a story like this and then unembed. I think we are we are now part of this narrative. Now, you know, this film, um, Welcome to Chechnya, you know, it's, it's, it's made, it has several purposes. I mean, one, to illuminate this, these people's experiences and the story uh, to an international audience. But, you know, it, it's not a film where uh, somebody watches and then are supposed to go about their daily life as if, you know, they're watching something, whatever, movie. So, you know, this is supposed to inspire action. Um, so what can people do? Well, just being witness is a radical act. 
I mean, this is a campaign that Chechnya has denied, that Putin has denied. Uh, it's not happening. There are no victims. There is no evidence. There are no witnesses. We are all witness now when we see this film. We watch it. We that's what that's what the the survivors bravely gave us was the ability to witness what happened there and what's happening there. And they asked me to just get people to put their eyeballs on it, to know it, to know that that's happening. Um, Grisha asked the audience at Sundance to, to tweet, I am a witness, you know, hashtag, I am a witness. Like, like that to him is the, this act of just declaring, defying, that's what it is, defying Ramzan Kadyrov um, by being a witness. And, and that raises the visibility of the story um, uh, in ways that empower our governments to do something about it and say something about it. Um, the two big asks are to call your government, call your leaders um, and say, uh, this has to stop. We have to throw the weight of our government behind a demand to, to end this, this crime and to bring justice to the people who have suffered so terribly. And the second thing is to further empower the people who are doing the work. They, uh, they, this is very expensive work, very dangerous work, as you see. Um, and, um, uh, and they can't raise funds in Russia because that's one of the ways that autocracy protects itself is it makes it impossible for opposition to, uh, to, to sustain itself. So they've asked for people to donate to the Russian LGBT network and the Moscow Community Center and also to Maxim in his case, uh, his criminal case, which is being uh, uh, prosecuted by the um, Committee Against Torture. And, um, and you can find uh, a way to do that on the welcometochechnia.com website. And, uh, uh, and there's a, a page called Save Lives that will allow you to uh, increase the capacities of those three initiatives to continue doing this work. Um, and finally... How did this, I mean, you've talked a lot about the, the impact of this film on you and your crew, but you know, when you think about your experience of making this film in the context of the other film, the other two films you've made, like how has this, where do you first, where do you fit Welcome to Chechnya into that intel, you know, artistic and intellectual, you know, mission? Uh, but how has it changed you and you, how you understand you know, not, not just yourself as a queer person, but also as part of a, you know, an international uh, rights campaign or struggle. Well, you know, I, I said earlier that I see the film as being part of a trilogy about um, uh, queer activism. And, uh, and it fits in uh, squarely to that, um, uh, to that theme. It's, uh, it's, the first film that I've actually shot in verite form, the two, two previous films were about historical activism. Um, How to Survive a Plague is about uh, uh, AIDS activism and, and the, the, the birth of kind of patient self-advocacy, the citizen science movement. Um, the Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson is about the birth of the modern LGBTQ movement and the formation of the... The, really the formulation of the concept of transgender 
the transgender community having its own kind of identity and perspective. Um, so one from the 90s, one from the 60s, and this was unfolding in front of me. And that was a challenge for me as a, as a relatively new filmmaker. I come to this after a career in print journalism to, to go back to my kind of um, hit traditions in print journalism to tell stories as they're unfolding and news events uh, from the day. Um, and, uh, and I think what I learned from this exposure was, was, um, was courage. I mean, I don't think that I learned about courage so much as I, it gave me courage. And I think that's the, the, the power of inspiration that this kind of activism wields is that it makes you more courageous to experience it. And, you know, as we were making the film, we were saying we wanted to tell a story that implicates the audience. And, you know, I wanted to, I wanted the audience to feel responsible, but also the film makes the audience feel, feel powerful, I think. And, and that's, through the examples of these incredible heroic individuals that, that they teach us that we can do this. We can take this stuff on. We can make a difference. We can uh, dedicate our lives, change our lives, disrupt our lives in order to be able to disrupt world history. And that is incredible power. That was David France. David France is an Oscar-nominated filmmaker, New York Times best-selling author, and award-winning investigative journalist. He's directed three films on LGBT rights, resistance, and life, including How to Survive a Plague, The Life and Death of Marsha P. Johnson, and most recently, Welcome to Chechnya. You can view Welcome to Chechnya on HBO. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Simple plan. Simple plan.